I hope that people put down the book and go something. Gosh, dang it. I can do something. That's right. And that's good enough. Welcome to the Find Your Voice podcast, a show where we believe in the power of the written word to create positive change in your personal life, your community, and the world. I'm your host, Allison Fallon. Whether you're an aspiring author or someone who swears they're not a real writer, we're here to show you how a regular practice of writing will help you access your intuition, make an impact, and find your voice. Join me for interviews with authors, writing prompts, and stories of how even simple words change lives. If you've been listening to the Find Your Voice podcast for a long time, you'll recognize the name of today's guest because she's been a guest before. In fact, she's our first repeat guest. Amy Wolf is a writer, a speaking coach, and the author of a new book called Signs of Hope, How Small Acts of Love Can Change the World. Now, if you listened to Amy's last episode, you'll know we talk a lot about the writing process in that episode as she was in the midst of writing this book. If you haven't heard that episode, you should scroll all the way back and find it. But in this episode, we talk about mental health. We talk about the state of the world today. We talk about using the writing practice as a way to sort of feel around in the dark is how she describes it. And we also talk about how to know when you're ready to write your story and so much more that we cover. But mostly, the greatest thing that we cover in today's conversation is hope. No surprise from the title of her book, Signs of Hope. Amy says, living a life of impact can start small. It can grow unexpectedly and it can contain a simple message of hope. You can make a difference in the world today through small acts of kindness. And Amy's going to tell you exactly how in our conversation today. Hope, I know, can feel like a very lofty concept, but I promise you today, Amy brings it way down to earth. She talks about hope on a spectrum, how quickly we can go from hopeful to angry to despair to apathy, and then how we get back from apathy to back to even to angry because that helps us get back to hopeful. She talks about the components of hope, like what it takes in order for us to stay hopeful about a thing. And so many other amazing gems in today's conversation. So let's dive right in. Welcome back to the Find Your Voice podcast, Amy Wolf. Hello. Hi. Round two. You're our very first guest to come <gasps> back for a second time. Stop it. So this is exciting. Yes. How did I get and- so lucky. Your episode that we recorded before is also one of my favorite episodes that we've ever recorded. I have, you know, you're not supposed to pick favorites, but don't pick favorites unless it's me, (laughs) then you can pick favorites. (laughs) We had a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun comparing written word versus spoken word because you're a professional now in both, but originally in the written word and I am a speaker coach, a professional in the spoken word. And so it was really interesting to compare notes in our first conversation about such similarities. Yeah. And if if you are listening and you haven't heard Amy's first episode, I know we have a lot of brand new listeners. You should scroll back and make sure you find the episode with Amy Wolf where we talk about the writing process for her book, which we'll talk about. We're going to talk about the book itself on today's episode. We talk about how we met and how <laughs> Amy and I have this cool symbiotic trading yeah. of expertise. She helped me when I started on my speaking tour and I helped her when she started on her book and lots of other really fun things that we cover and talk about. So make sure you go back and listen to that. But because you've been here before, you know, the first question 
that we always ask, and I'm going to ask it again. What does it mean to you to find your voice? Oh gosh, I'm not good at winging it. See, I coach people to be prepared in an interview. <laughs> you really can't, you can't have this well articulated talk because it's all unscripted. But my first thoughts, what does it mean for me to find my voice? Yes. This is probably layered from life experiences, but the first thing that came to mind is what do I really think? Yeah. You grow up conditioned with, you know, what your parents, how they vote or your church and what they believe or your school and its priorities or, you know, all these different things. And I think finding my voice is what do I really think and confidently speaking it out loud, sharing it out loud, uh, writing it out loud. (laughs) But you have to know what you want to say. You have to know what you believe. You have to have conviction. And so I think that's my first thought. It's getting to know what I really think and then the boldness to share it. Yeah, I agree with that. That's It's what important work for us to do regardless of how we go about that. What I teach a lot is using a writing practice as a way to uncover and discover what you really think. But yeah. regardless of how you go about it, you're teaching people to do something very similar through the spoken word. Mm-hmm. And regardless of the path we take to get there, nothing could possibly be more important than you know feeling really grounded and settled in what we what we believe and what we feel convicted about. Yeah. Okay. You have this new book out. It's called Signs of Hope. I do. How Small Acts of Love Can Change Your World. I'm sorry. I said it's out. It's not out. It's available for pre-order now though. Is that correct? It is. Yes. Available for pre-order wherever you order your books. And I want to talk to you about this book because in our last episode, we talked a lot about the writing process for this book. But what I want to do today is talk about some of the content that's in the book because this is such an important it's such an important book and it's coming out at such an important time. So can you give us a little bit of backstory on the book? You do this in the early part of the book, so don't give away all the juicy, you know, good <laughs> stories, but just kind of tell us like, where did this book come from? How did it come to be? Yeah. Well, I accidentally started a national movement of spreading <laughs> hope and love through yard signs of all things. It was so cheesy. It was so cliche. It was desperate I had heard about a string of suicides in our community and had no idea uh, how to be part of a solution or how to encourage people suffering. And I thought, well, shoot, I've had this idea with signs for a while and you can read the backstory in the book. But we put out these 20 signs. It became a thing. People wanted signs in their yard. And then it went to all 50 states and over two dozen countries rather quickly When we went viral in May of 2019, I had a literary agent reach out to me and say, I saw you, your article in the Washington Post. Have you thought about writing a book? A book was something that was always on my Mm -hmm. life goals list. Have you ever read Mark Batterson's 100 Life Goals? No. Yeah, I don't know if I actually ever read it. But the concept, (laughs) (laughs) the concept is no dream is too small, just throw it on paper. Mm. And so I had, I had put, write a book, but I didn't know what that meant. Yeah. Uh, interesting. In your book, you told this story about how you and I yes. worked on a book. We did. We outlined a whole book for yes. you around speaking. Yes. It's not this book. It's not. No. <laughs> it's not the book I'm publishing it right now. And so I, I had thought it was going to be this trades book about speaking skills and empowering people to speak their ideas out loud in effective ways. And then this other book landed on my lap. It's been a two-year journey of birthing it, of living it, as you say, that you've 
you text me when I said, I don't have any more words, Ali, my yeah. word count. I word counted my book document like a college student trying to write their final paper. Like I just, <laughs> you're on contract for a certain number of words and I wasn't sure if I had enough words. And Ali, I don't know what else I, what else would people care to know about this <laughs> movement or these ideas? And you said, just live it, just live it. You're still living yeah. it. It's lived experience. It'll inform your writing and so I just sat with it. Um, it actually did come pretty easily, but the book is around this idea of the power of hope, the power of when we choose to encourage one another, the power of when we take action, the power of doing that imperfectly, and then also the courage to take hope for ourselves when we need it. So mm-hmm. it, it explores these ideas of love and, and hope that it's a collection of stories, really. The book is a collection of stories of my personal life and some of the challenges and trauma in my life. And then also many, many stories from the movement of people encountering our hope at the right time, at the right mm-hmm. place. I love it. There are so many stories you tell in the book. It's one of my favorite things about mm-hmm. how you write this book. And it is, there. you tell a lot of your story, but... There are also so many other people's stories here too, which I think is a really effective way to communicate this message because essentially what you're saying is we're all in this together. And and so to have everyone else's stories included too feel really important. I want to read a sh- this short segment from the end of your first little mini chapter, you call it. Yeah. Because this feels like a great segue into the next question I want to ask you. And I want to give readers a sense of what they're going to get to when they get a copy of the book. So you write, are you feeling weary, hopeless, sad? I'm not going to offer you words like this will make you stronger in the end. Those kinds of encouragements don't help me. In fact, when I'm in the thick of grief or confusion, those words are not only not helpful, they're irritating. I don't care if things will get better later or if I'll be stronger from it later. I need a lifeline right now. I need to find a way to get through today know the feeling. If you're holding this book right now, feeling worn down, instead of offering flowery platitudes, I'll just sit in agreement with you that sometimes life stinks. It can be unfair. We can max out on our endurance. We've all been there and perhaps still are. But even here in the mess, you can claim hope for yourself. If you feel fatigued, your lungs are burning, your thoughts are all over the place, your resolve is waning and you want to quit, quit. here's your boost. Not an upbeat hip hop power song, but three simple words. Don't give up. And I love that. It To me, that feels like the, the rally cry, the battle song of yeah. what we all need to hear right now in the early parts of 2021. I mean, hopefully we're recovering from what a crazy year 2020 was, but the, the book is coming out into the world in this time when we're all recovering from... I mean, I don't have to list all the things we've talked about a million times on the show, but like just all the nuttiness that we've all lived through together in the last 12 months or so. Yeah. What, what are your thoughts about the fact the book is com- that the book is coming out now? Like, why does the world need this book right this minute? Yeah. Well, I think we all need to find some solidarity in, well, this sucks. <laughs> well, this is messy. You know, it's the timing, you know, I would say of a person of faith that it's kind of divine timing and coordinated and orchestrated because it does seem timely with the pandemic. In fact, another side story, I had to rewrite the whole last chapter of the book because it was so celebratory in a time that was, there was so much suffering 
And there's actually some really uh, beautiful parts of that last chapter that were written in the first six weeks of quarantine that made me cry rereading it. But I, yeah, I think the timing is now, I think people are suffering for all kinds of reasons, but then Mm -hmm. I have these moments of four years ago, we put out 20 signs and it exploded because (laughs) people saw hope on a sign and took it for themselves because of addiction, because of divorce, because of a medical diagnosis, because of struggles with depression or self-harm ideation. And so the message, I yes, we need it more now than ever, but they're timeless messages. Yeah. They were for us four years ago, and these messages are for us four years from now. But I do think we need to have this rallying, hopeful cry together in these days. I do think the timing yeah. is important but I do think it is a, these are mess. These are messages that are timeless for humanity. Yeah. Yeah. And I get that from you in the book over and over again. I just get, even, even though you don't say this in these exact words, but just the idea we need each other. We cannot yes. climb out of this pit by ourselves. It is um, too hard. It is too hard. It is too messy. Yeah. We need each other. Yeah. And maybe given that answer, I might know the answer to this next question, but I'm curious if you would say, knowing you're not a mental health professional, but do you feel like as a nation right now, and and even as a world, like that we're experiencing a mental health crisis or or how else would you describe the current environment that we're living in? Because, you know, to, to your point, what you said a minute ago, this idea came to you long before the pandemic ever hit. That's right. Yeah. I, and even this, the idea, the signs came way before the suffering in our community where we had a string of suicides. The, the concept came to me years before via our friend Bob Goff reading one of his books. And so, and it had nothing to do with self-harm ideation. And so, the, you know, there's, there's nuance to the movement itself and the messages itself. But the, I do think we're in a mental health crisis I w- I'm really slow to make conclusions about things. So at the beginning of the pandemic, people are saying all these rates were skyrocketing of suicide and self-harm ideation. And we just didn't have any data to really sure. support those claims. We're getting more now. And sadly, I think in hindsight, we're going to learn more about the psychological effects of isolation and financial Mm-hmm. Uh, security crumbling, and I think we're I think we're going to learn more about it. Sadly, as the years go on, and we can have some data, but I think we're all feeling it before sure. we're learning or we're you know validating it. I but I, I'll go back to what I said before. I think there's a crisis before. I think there's a crisis now, perhaps in greater scale, which maybe there's a collective crisis and volume that we haven't experienced like this before in our generation. So I I don't want to discount the level of suffering now. I do think we're seeing it in a volume and scale that is unfamiliar to us, but I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful for all of us. Yeah. That again comes through so clearly in the book. I felt waves of hopefulness, just reading Mm. stories of people who found such encouragement um, from just seeing a simple yard sign. I mean, you made the joke in the beginning of this conversation and I'll jump on that with you, but just like, sort of like, who could have thought that yard signs? Oh no, they're the dumbest <laughs> as cliche thing. as it sounds. It's like, but it's not, it, it is. And it isn't, you know, 
you live in a, a small town in Oregon that my, my sister actually lives very close to you. Yeah. And so whenever I'm in town visiting her, I, I'm always, you know, driving around the community and it started for me seeing the signs there and, um, you know, knowing that you were behind them, but just sort of feeling like what a, what an amazing act of solidarity and, mm-hmm. and love and hope that you're able to put these, um, signs out into the world. And then it started happening where I would be somewhere else entirely. Like you know, at the time <laughs> I was living in Nashville or I'd be on a, uh, like a, at a speaking engagement in some other, like in Iowa or in somewhere else. Yeah. And I would see these signs. I'm sure you get this from tons of people too, sending you pictures of the signs like, Oh my gosh, Amy, <laughs> they're oh, here too. And I get, I get surprised by it too. When I see them even in Oregon I, and I know I see the orders, I see where they're shipped. And yet I still have these elements of Holy crap. Look at all, yeah. look at how far I remember I had an acquaintance in Alaska, send me a picture oh my gosh, I just drove by one of your signs or a friend in Dallas, Texas took a picture of a sign she saw in in a big city. And then a friend of a friend of a friend who was driving through middle of nowhere, Colorado and saw a sign and then ends up, I know why, I know the family who put out that sign and why in their Mm. suffering and their trauma and their loss. And so it is still startling and still beautiful and still pinch me. How, how did yard signs become a thing? And I write about it in the book. There was a moment of insight for me of how they became, they really were genius. Yeah. Talk about that. Talk about that. Yeah. There, it was about five, six months after the movement. And I met a woman who works in, I wanted to say grief industry. That doesn't sound right. But she <laughs> is like a grief advocate in this. Okay. She wrote a book called It's Okay Not to Be Okay. And she's a great lady. I hadn't really, I hadn't known her well before. When I explained to her how the signs were exploding and these cliche words of encouragement really were resonating with people. I asked her, how does that work? Because her, a lot of her teaching is that these platitudes and these words of encouragement are more destructive and harmful than positive Mm -hmm. when people are suffering. Well, when my brother died, when I was 14, I remember people saying things to me like, oh, this is God's timing or God doesn't give you anything that you can't handle. And I remember thinking, screw you. (laughs) Like that just, it's not helpful. No, thank you. And I think sadly my, my faith community can be the worst at it. And so I asked her if words are, can be harmful because we're trying to bandaid each other's wounds. Why are these signs impacting people? And she introduced me to the concept of moments of sovereignty Mm. where I am facilitating moments where people are minding their own business driving to work, driving to the airport, driving to the grocery store. And out of the middle of nowhere, they see three words on a yard sign or more, depending which one. And they take hope for themselves through whatever lens of suffering, whether it's the health scare or it's the relationship problems or the infertility, they see the sign and they feel like in a moment of time, it was for them at the right place. Yeah. Then they claim it for themselves. No one's band-aiding their wounds. No one's trying to hurry their healing or solve their suffering, but people are taking it and seeing it for themselves, seeing that this was providential, serendipitous, whatever you call it for them in that moment. And that's the power. 
And that was really insightful. That gave me words and concepts to understand why they were having the impact they were. Yeah. Why this movement has done what it's done. Yeah. So what meaning can we take from that as, you know, just observers of what has happened for you and what meaning do you take from it as it relates to like, you know, how can we really contribute to the overall healing of the world that the, you know, the world is so hungry for right now. And then, and also like, what does it say about us if we're in a place of suffering? What's the lesson for us? Yeah. I don't have any really genius lesson. I'm with you. I'm human. (laughs) I'm in the suffering too. Um, I happened upon the work of two gentlemen who wrote a book called Hope Rising. I write about it in the last chapter of the book, but Casey Gwynn and Chan Hellman wrote Hope Rising. And what they tried to do is psychologically try to understand hope. So when we feel a lack of hope or we're trying to help other people feel hopeful, like what is that based on? What is it? And Mm -hmm. I found their work to be incredibly, uh, you know, when you read the book, it's a lot of feeling. And this was a really sobering leveling out of kind of the psychology or the science of hope. And they found that hope requires three things. One is a positive desired outcome for our lives. So we can Mm -hmm. hope for a positive relationship. We can hope for having children. We can hope for a satisfying job. The other thing that hope requires is pathways, meaning ways to achieve the goals. Well, maybe if I want a positive marriage, a pathway is counseling. If I want a satisfying job, perhaps a pathway is getting in the right industry and not a great job, but it's teaching me the right skills to prep me for my dream job. So pathways are like the the ways that you can obtain the goal. And then the third thing that hope requires, a desire, a positive desired outcome, pathways to achieve it. And the third is beautiful. And it's a sense of agency. We wow. have to believe in our ability to do the, the pathways, to do the things sure. that we've achieved the goals. And what was really helpful is that they built this hope continuum model where they said, okay, so we start with these hopeful outcomes or goals for our lives, but life happens. Curveballs come, grief comes. Uh, infertility comes, infidelity comes, diagnosis comes, uh, then what? So Mm -hmm. they talk about when there are things that disrupt our really positive goals, we can go from hopeful to angry. And angry is okay. Be angry at situations. Be angry at injustice and trauma and setback. The problem is in, in the anger phase, if we can't identify pathways to overcome Okay, what's a different way to achieve the goal? Now we should go to counseling. Now I do need my space. Now, you know, what are the pathways to overcome? If we can't identify them, we move from anger to despair. And in despair, we feel very stuck. And in despair, if we lose our sense of agency, if we stop believing we can overcome, then we go to the fourth stage, which is the opposite of hopeful and it's apathy. We stop caring. We give up. We stop caring. We don't have the energy anymore. We don't think we can overcome. There's no ways to overcome. We can't redefine our goals depending on, you know, the curveballs of life and we get stuck in apathy. And the beautiful part of this scale is that it's fluid. There are some parts in my life I feel hopeful in other places right now I feel despair. 
And tomorrow I might feel more angry than despair because I, my renewed sense of agency has built up and I can do this and I, I can do hard things, but I'm not still quite sure how to do it. And so we go up and down this scale. So the number one thing I would say to anyone feeling really hopeless in a situation in your life is you're not stuck. I know it feels that way, but just because you can't feel your ability to overcome your sense of agency, just because you don't feel it doesn't mean you're not capable. Mm. And just because you can't see pathways to overcome, you don't feel those right now, doesn't mean they don't exist. They do. And just because you can't even grasp what a positive outcome would be in this area of your life, it just feels so distant or not what you wanted, doesn't mean that there's better, great things to desire and hopes to have. You just don't feel them now. And so there's this great permission. You're on a fluid continuum and it might feel like you're stuck, but you're not. And as someone trying to love others through what feels like a hopeless situation, I would say, be patient, be patient as we flex up and down, be able to sit with people's pain, be able, be unafraid of it. Stop trying to solve it. You know, we need to be a little bit more patient in people's grief and just gain a capacity to be present instead of trying to swoop in like a hero. And of course, that's not that's not a blanket. You know, sometimes we need to intervene when we feel like our our friends, our family might be in danger to themselves or they really need outside resources to help them find that hope or a sense of agency yeah. or ways to overcome. But I, I would say for me, I have learned as someone who really likes words a lot, <laughs> I, yeah. need to sh- I need to shut up sometimes and I just need to be with people and minister mm-hmm. to their hearts and their souls and their brokenness by just sitting with capacity to hold it with them. What do you think stops us from doing that, from just being with people? Oh, it's really uncomfortable. It is yeah. very, very messy and uncomfortable to sit in suffering. And yes. I think even even well-intended, we can say all these nice things and do all these nice things for people. But I think deep down, it's because we want to get out of the discomfort of their sure. darkness, of their yeah. happiness. And it's really almost self-serving because we don't know how to hold the weight of it. Um, yeah, and, then, and then we have our own junk and we're trying to hold our own weight. So I think there's <laughs> yeah. probably multifaceted layers to that. Yeah. Yeah. I can so see that when I filter it through my own experience though, there's sometimes when you're just like, can you just please feel better so that I, so that it doesn't disrupt <laughs> what I have. Yeah. You're not the fun days. friend anymore or yeah. but now holidays are a drag because you're going through this hard thing and we, mm-hmm. we get really impatient and selfish. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, I think it's human nature to resist discomfort and pain, especially maybe culturally and generationally right now. And we have to fight that. Yeah. I love this, the whole last few minutes, five minutes or so, I'm, 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 I feel like I'm having an epiphany because I'm filtering this through my own experience and just recognizing mm-hmm. how in the last 12 months of my life, when a lot of challenges have been thrown at me, I can see myself moving along that continuum. You know, mm-hmm. I was laughing the other day at how at the beginning of 2020, like February 
of 2020, I fired my therapist because I was like, things are going great. I'm like, I don't have anything to talk about. I'm, I just got married. I'm pregnant. I'm going to have a baby. Like I just, I feel like life is on an upward trajectory. Yeah. (laughs) Oh man. So, (laughs) you know, like moving from being so hopeful for the future to definitely moments of like extreme anger throughout the year in 2020, things that felt so unfair and so, um, so unfair. I mean, not just for me, but for, for all the things that I was watching unfold on the news and, um, and then having swinging to moments of total despair. And also I can point to several moments in the year when I felt that sense of apathy. It was like, well, let's just give up and watch Netflix, I guess, because this is going to be how things are. And the three things you listed, the positive desired outcome, the pathways to achieve those goals and a sense of agency to achieve those things make perfect sense to me when I think about the moments when I felt hopeful versus when I felt apathy. And you know what? It it also makes me think of, and this is kind of a tangent, but I'm going to say it anyway. (laughs) It makes me think of like boundaries around how we consume media and news because we've talked about this some on the show. And it's a question I get a lot on Instagram too. Like, you know, how do I know how to set boundaries and how much I should consume and how, like, how do I balance like staying in the loop and also like staying healthy mentally. And what I thought as you listed those three, three things out is that a lot of the news that I consume that I find is even available to consume paints a picture that there's no positive desired outcome. There's no Mm. pathway to achieve what we're trying to achieve together and that we have no sense of agency that we're just victims. We're pawns in the game you know, uh, the government's going to dictate what happens to us. And it really yeah. does. That's the epiphany I'm having is that creates a sense of apathy. Yes. So I feel like, you know, I've had moments where I'm like, well, it's irresponsible to stay out of the loop. And so I kind of feel like I need to like check in on what's happening. And I try to, to use responsible media outlets as much as I can. But, but at the end of the day, like, you know, if, if consuming media like that is going to lead me to a sense of apathy, then it is in no way a responsible thing for me to do Yeah, because I have to find a way to stay either in hopeful or angry or at least despair because yes, at least that means I'm still engaged. Yes. You know, I'm, I'm like recognizing the truth of what's happening yes. in the world. Yes. So man. Yeah. And the other thing that, that comes up for me too, is just thinking of how, what a, what a brave and courageous act it is to fight for hope in our own lives, let alone to fight mm. for hope for the world. Why would you call it brave? So uh, this is outside of the context of your book, but I've said before, you know, the opposite of hope is disappointment. And that's why we're scared to hope because we're scared to be disappointed. And if we can increase our appetite or our tolerance of disappointment, we could actually increase our capacity to hope for things. If I'm going to hope, like if I might release a book and I'm going to hope it hits the New York Times list, you know, I mean... I think we can have a pretty good sense of like what the likelihood is that that will happen. And, and then we're scared to hope for something because we're like, well, if you know, it's pretty likely that's not going to happen. And then I'm going to be disappointed. 100%. I write about that in the, in that chapter I wrote about my marriage and how mm. I didn't have at one point, it was so hard and so heavy. And I didn't want to hope because hoping yeah. hurt. Hoping was like, maybe it'll get better. And if it doesn't, I'm just disappointed. And so I didn't sure. even want to hope. Because hoping was keeping my heart soft and that meant pain and I didn't want pain anymore. So I think you're totally onto something. But I also think, you know, the bravest thing that we can do is find a way to keep our heart soft in a world that's very cruel. And, and I've said this before on Instagram that I don't, you know, a lot of people will say like, you know, that 
to be in publishing, you need to grow thick skin, which I think is, I just think that's baloney. Like you, there, I don't think there's any industry where growing thick skin is going to actually help you be truly successful, but. Well, it strips away our humanity, which makes us the most influential part of us, right? Totally. <laughs> yeah. Totally. But I guess all of this, what I'm getting around to is you talk about in the book, the idea that we can get overwhelmed feeling like, how could I possibly create a change in the world. Yeah. That that really resonated with me with how I felt in 2020. It's like I can't I'm working my butt off just to create a change in my own personal life or to, you know, to yeah. sort of stay above water and stay hopeful in my own life. And so how can I do that on a uh, you know, global scale? And you you introduce a really interesting paradigm shift that I'd love for you to talk about. You basically say like, don't worry about changing the world. <laughs> yeah. So talk a little bit about that paradigm yeah. shift. Well, I really hated the subtitle they suggested for my book. I'm like, that is so stinking cheesy. How small acts of love can change your world? Barf. And then I, w- <laughs> I was in Palm Springs that particular weekend with a bunch of girlfriends. And I went to a bookstore and I just read it, started reading all the subtitles. I'm like, oh, they're all cheesy. <laughs> like, yeah. No- yeah, they are. They are. Yeah. They're all cheesy. Okay, great. Let's do it. But yeah, I really resist the change the world world. Like, let's just work on getting up in the mornings and (laughs) surviving our own stuff. But I do, the book really is a rallying cry that you can have a life of significant impact and it's easier than you think. It doesn't require more time. It doesn't require necessarily, doesn't require your having it all together. And so I do, I hope people feel very empowered and challenged. There are some really hard parts in this book of loving people you don't want to love. And what does yeah. that look like? And so I really hope people lean into the challenge of loving well and changing the world through radical love when it seems impossible to love people who vote different and believe sure. different and talk different. Uh, I forget entirely what your question was, how small acts of love can change your world, that concept. Yeah, no, I was just saying you introduced the paradigm shift that basically this idea of changing the world is that you don't like the phrase. No, I don't. Yeah. 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 Because it's too daunting and we feel like we have to have more resources or more platform or more time. And we put all these people on pedestals like Oprah and Mother Teresa and we just can't be them. And the point is, and I hope it's crystal clear in the book through stories is that we don't have to be perfect. And yet here was me not knowing how to respond to my suffering community. And I put out 20 flipping yard signs and that was all I was going to yeah. do. Did it anonymously. And it mattered. It mattered to so many people. And sometimes it becomes a big global movement and gets you a book contract and helps m- thousands. And sometimes it doesn't and it's good yeah. enough. And we just need to see, instead of being overwhelmed by this question, what good could I possibly do? And the amount of suffering in so many ways around me, I hope that people put down the book and go something, gosh, dang it. I can do something. something. That's right. And that's good enough. That feels like a great segue to talk about this because I know we have a lot of listeners who, well, I would say probably all of our listeners have a sense like I want to contribute something meaningful to the world. I think everybody has that built into their DNA, but also a bunch of listeners who are like you were years ago, who have a pipe dream, maybe they would call it of writing a book. Like they're, you know, they think that would be so cool. It's on my bucket list, but I wouldn't know where to start. And, and, you know, they've heard the, the feedback about, well, to publish a book, you need a platform and you need Instagram followers and all these, all this stuff. And so then maybe they hear your story and feel like, 
okay, so I have to get lucky and have, you know, <laughs> like get, catch some, you know, viral media in yeah. order to grow my platform to the place where, yeah. where a New York agent would be reaching out to me. Can you just give them some encouragement or advice or, or thoughts about what it means to be contributing your voice to the world, even when it doesn't seem like anyone's listening? Oh my gosh. Yeah, I will be concise in my thoughts here. Number one, I have very little platform, very little social platform, very little followers <laughs> to the point where in this process, I'm like, am I good enough? Did I fake these publishers out? Did I fake <laughs> this literary agent out? Like, do they, how many books do they think I'm going to sell? You know, they're like, you can send 50 influencer kits. I'm like, good Lord, am I supposed to know 50 people with large platforms? <laughs> like suddenly this imposter syndrome of, did I oversell myself? And then I have to remind myself, I didn't sell myself anything. They came to me, gosh, darn it. I must have something to share. So it is validating that I was sought out for this opportunity, but I have learned in my writing before the book, I have a blog and it has been really instrumental for me. I, I My personal writing feels like feeling my way through the dark where mm. there's political tensions and writing and blogging just... It feels like I'm feeling my way through the dark with words. And then other people go, oh, you put words to things, to nuance that I haven't known how to share. And so it's been really validating and also confirming I don't need a book to do that. I yeah. don't need a publisher to do that. And even if it's a 100 people reading short captions on an Instagram photo or reading my essays that I'm publishing every, a couple times a year when only I will feel like it. It's not even consistent that it, it matters because then people go, Oh, you said the things I didn't know how to say, or, you know, I've had some old women at church come up to me and be like, you're really challenging me with your words and nuance. Yeah. And maybe things aren't so black and white. And, and that matters if it's just this older gal at church who her eyes were open to a whole different way to think of things. And, and so I, I am a firm believer that you have a unique angle. It's not that you might share something no one's ever heard of before. That's fine because it's coming from you. It's in your yep. community, you know, and a voice somewhere else saying the same thing wouldn't have the same impact of you saying it in your community, in your way. So I've had to fight those own demons in my own mind of self-doubt and then also embrace the feedback and the beauty and the opportunity of sharing my words in these ways. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that list of things you said, like, you know, am I good enough to do this? Did I fake out these publishers? <laughs> I have heard those exact words from, from writers, authors that you would be shocked to know. Yeah, we're not, that, we're not immune to it. Huh? Yes. That the yeah. author who you think, yes. well, of course they, of course they know they're amazing. They've sold Right. However many books are like, they're, you know, they're the author who I think of when I think of the best writer I right. know. And they say the same things to me. It's crazy. You know, you finish one book and then you have to go start over and stare at the blank page. And, and that's, that's what comes up for all of us. It's that like, was oh my no, favorite that part. Yeah. yeah. That was my favorite part of your book was that staring down the blank page, because it is such an illustration of personally the work of creating and crafting with our words and confronting where we feel like we fall short or we don't have anything to give. Uh, it was such a beautiful chapter. It was my favorite chapter in your book. Uh, it's, we have to do that self work. 
Yeah. To be honest, to give, to put out honest words that captivate people. We should be honest about the imposter syndrome and, you know, we, we should be showing, you know, dropping the facade and. Yeah. I mean, I hope that we're as a culture becoming more honest about this stuff. It's, it's really like competitive if you think about it, to not be honest about the fact that we're facing the same fears and insecurities that everyone else Mm. is facing because, you know, we want to sort of act like, oh yeah, well, if you were up here with me, then you wouldn't be feeling this way, but because you haven't accomplished what I've accomplished, you know, but the, the, the truth of the matter is like the things we feel when we put our heart out in the world are all universal. And I've launched three of my own books and at least 10 others were, you know, collaborating with authors over the years. And I'm telling you, this book came out and I'm just like, wow, it never ceases to amaze me how much I feel like the high school version of myself when a book comes out. I'm like, really? this is ter- yeah, I'm like, this is terrifying. You're like, people aren't going to like me. You know, it just feels like <laughs> I'm sitting at the lunch table alone. It's very weird. It's like, oh, I feel I, you that. know, yeah. I'm just like, yeah, I've done this a million times and you'd think it would get better and it doesn't. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a vulnerable so. process to create. Totally. But I think, you know, what I can take away from this conversation, and this is so clear in your book too, is that vulnerability is really all that matters. It's like, if we can all stay, keep our hearts soft in that way, then we can be connected to one another's humanity. We can know that we're not alone. We can work together to create the vision of the future that we all want to experience. And that's the, it's the only way to do it. Honestly, I don't think there's another way forward. Yeah. So, I do want to ask you about what writing looks like for you now, because that's how we always wrap up these episodes. But before I do that, tell people where they can go find your book. Yeah, you can find information on it at don'tgiveupsigns.com forward slash signs of hope. So you'll get to hear about the movement when you go to the website, but then also learn about the book and some of the things that we discuss in the book there. And there's some pre-order goodies, too, if you pre-order the book before launch April 6th. There's some fun, really practical things in there, tangible things you can download and print to spread some hope in your own community. So I'm really excited about that. I love that. And the book, again, is called Signs of Hope, How Small Acts of Love Can Change Your World by Amy Wolf. And Amy and I are publisher friends. We both (laughs) are published by the same publisher. I know. Also, I'll just do a tiny plug for Amy because it's so hard for authors to say this for themselves, but pre-order numbers make such a huge difference. If you ever want to help an author succeed, this is one of the best ways that you can help them succeed is to pre-order a copy of the book because, you know, it's a bummer to order something and not get it delivered right away. But if you order it now, you obviously get all the pre-order bonuses. And then it's also a huge help. Amy, it helps all of the distributors know how many copies of the book to order because they can kind of get a gauge for how popular it's going to be. So if you're going to order the book anyway, and you absolutely should, then go ahead and order it now. You'll get all the pre-order bonuses and it'll be really helpful to Amy. So thanks friend. No problem. Okay. (laughs) Last question. I want to talk to you about what writing looks like for you now, because I got to, I got sort of like a front row seat inside view into what writing the book looked like for you. But I'm curious if you've kept up with a writing practice or if it's like, you know, finishing a marathon when you're like, wow, that was fun. I'm never doing that again. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, you know, because it was almost a two year journey of writing the book. I was able to write when I felt it burning through my fingertips, wanting Mm. to come out. And so I really didn't feel against the clock. And that made this process actually a very positive one for me, being the first literary project of mine like this. And so it was actually a positive experience. And I I was just thinking this week, if I had another book in me, what is it? Oh, yeah. (laughs) I was ready to create. 
I'm I'm ready to create something else, but we'll do one one big project at a time, I suppose. I love it. Well, you'll have to let me know when you know what the next book is in you. Yeah. I think you have another book in you. <laughs> I thought that when I helped you outline the first book. So maybe yes. we'll come back around to the first book. Maybe. Yes. I have to say, if I were to guess that it would be chapter seven of Signs of Hope, I would write a whole book about chapter seven. So Ooh. you can go find it, read it. Go and then be, chapter seven. That's right. It's uh, loving people who are different from you. And I would love to write a book about that because I've been in a very uncomfortable journey over the last couple of years. You'd be the perfect person to write that book. And <laughs> a whole other podcast episode that like opens a whole <laughs> new train of questions. In oh, thank you. My writing practice now is, it's not regular, but I sometimes, I don't know if you relate to this, but I feel words brewing. I can feel them coming. I feel really passionate about something. I feel misunderstood. I feel tension. And that's when I start to feel like, oh, I have it. I have something to say. And that typically comes out in an essay. Uh, I, at amynwolf.com, you'll see a collection of essays and you'll, there's years and years of them. So you can probably even hear you would should never spend six hours reading those. But if you were to read a lot of them, you'd actually hear the evolution of my thought process and engaging the world completely differently from beginning to end. But I have found a lot of beauty in writing about deconstructing my personal faith and rebuilding it about Mm. uh, nuance, about, uh, you know, with this political season felt really passionate. There was a wrong way to vote, which is terrible to put out to the world. Terrible. (laughs) And as someone who's embraced nuance and empathy, it's a really terrible thing to say, but I felt really passionate. And so I wrote about it. And then a month later I wrote about how we're demonizing the other side. And so I love the tension. I love both. And I love trying to find words to capture that nuance and messiness. And so that's been my writing practice is essays, publishing them only when I feel it burning through my fingertips and only if I'm willing to risk being misunderstood, which is always, always the push and pull. Man, that's so important too. That willingness, you know, you and I actually talked about this before we hit record, but the willingness to be misunderstood, there's no way to write things and put them out there without that willingness to be misunderstood. Cause you know, even if you can kind of, most of the time you can't do this, but even if you can like get the thoughts perfect and defend yourself perfectly and put it out there, people will still choose to misunderstand you. Yep. But most of the time, you know, you're just like, you're like just sharing from where you are right in this moment, which is only one sliver of a perspective of what it's like to be part of the human race. And so, yeah. so yeah, yeah, you'll just get misunderstood. It's just probably, I've had to probably, let yeah. that one go. Is if if you're a passionate person and opinionated, and you write things publicly, <laughs> I've yeah. learned. I've I Enneagram Eight think tension is productive. Tension means we're getting to the heart of something really important. And so, if you want to wrestle and dis- disagree with me, it means we're both caring. So I like it. I like the tension. I like hard conversations. And so. In that, though, there's always room. Like, if my desire is to be liked at the end of this, then I might be disappointed. Yeah. But, if, but if the goal is to push my chair up to the table and be able to express myself in a way that felt honest and respectful, then I feel like even if other people want to push their table, their chair away from mine, that I did. M- m- I found my voice and yes. I spoke it in a way that was honest and respectful. And I can feel good about that. 
I love that so much. Amy, thank you so much for taking the time a second time to come back and oh. talk with us and share your stories of hope with us. And I'm sure we'll be having you back a third time when you write your next oh. book. Oh, you're so kind. I feel very honored by you. I hope everyone picks up this book and feels challenged and empowered. And if you need a reminder about the goodness of humanity, friends, this is a collection of stories from beautiful people. And I hope it's mm. inspiring for all of us. So good. Thanks for listening to the Find Your Voice podcast. We hope this inspires you to pick up a pen and start finding the words that will change your life, your community, and your world. If you liked what you heard today, share with a friend, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And if you haven't already, check out our website, findyourvoice.com. Subscribe to our Monday Motivation for free and get inspiring writing prompts in your inbox each week. Until next time, happy writing.